This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Recently, we hosted a panel at Portland State University on the topic of radio. Is college radio still relevant in 2017? What about the rise in community radio stations? And what has consolidation in the commercial radio sector done to the rest of the industry? Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Are you a band who's struggling to run an online store? Let's face it, your bass player is a terrible mail carrier, and you really can't practice when the singer is trying to track down a lost order. Merch Table can help with services ranging from warehousing and shipping to customer service, screen printing, tour logistics, and even marketing. You focus on your art, and Merch Table will handle the rest. MerchTable.com. On today's show, we discuss the current state of radio and what it says about the music industry as a whole. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Can I lick the crumbs from your table? Can I interfere in your crisis? No. Mind your own Support for The Future of What comes from SoundExchange. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Zelos Marchant of KBU, Rebecca Webb of Portland Radio Project, Aaron Hall of xray.fm, Laura Ragsdale of Distiller Promotions, and Jordan Rasmussen of KPSU. Welcome, you guys, to The Future of What. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. Good. good to be here. So today we're going to do a little panel on the state of the college radio industry and community radio and sort of radio in general, the radio landscape, as it were. And I think this is particularly interesting today because technology has changed so much, so fast, that the way people consume music has really shifted. So, Rebecca, I wanted to ask you, since your background is in commercial radio, if you can sort of give us an overview of just what has happened in the in the radio landscape in the last few years? I would love to. <laughs> Thank you for the question because I, I'm kind of obsessed by what's happened in radio during the course of my career, which started around 1980. Now, some people here listening were born after that, but I'm sure that they've studied and know that a lot has happened in radio since then. Basically, radio used to be in the public interest model. It meant that people in commercial radio had to go in the community. They were actually required by law to go out in the community and find out what people were concerned about, whether it was local music or a health issue or some industrial challenge or labor a situation that was going on, and then come back to the radio station and program to those concerns. Well, as we all know, that doesn't really happen so much anymore. And, and what happened was two big changes. One was in 1980 during an era of deregulation under President Reagan. He simply appointed a guy, Mark Fowler, to the FCC who changed, who declared the change from the public interest model to the market model. And henceforth, it was gonna be up to broadcasters as to what was in the public interest. It was no longer up to the public. That was the first big change. Then another huge change happened in 1996 with the Telecommunications Act. And that basically lifted the lid off of ownership concentration so that media companies could own any number, unlimited number of radio stations across the country. And that's what gave rise to giants like Clear Channel and Intercom and so on. And about half of broadcasting jobs were lost. At that time, much more automation came in. 
many fewer jobs, as I mentioned, and, and there was really much less contact with the public. So that's the face of what's happened in radio since 1980. Wow. So consolidation in the, of these radio stations all over the country by being purchased by the large companies. Right. So the owners are no longer in the community, by and large. Right. They're programming from distant headquarters and very little local talent. Right. And it also means that the programming is more national. It's not local. It's You're exactly. hearing the same playlist in exactly. every, let's say, Intercom-owned station across the country rather than having, you know, scenes developing their own music, music. and other programming is generated largely from elsewhere. That's right. correct. Right. Now, that's interesting because that has happened, you know, that happened in 96. And then after 96 was this explosion of the Internet. So it's, it's like a, two things happened mm -hmm. and, ha and they've both created. I mean, in some ways, you would say that this might be the heyday of college radio for the simple reason that if you're not having local bands, local music, local programming on the big stations, where do people look for that? Right, music? absolutely. And and certainly that is the upside of what remains, you know, of college stations. And those who know more about college stations, you know, should should talk about that. But I think it also has been the rise, you know, was simultaneous with the rise of the internet, but also with the commercial broadcasters moving away from communities, that gave rise to a push for a lot of community stations. And I know KBOO's here, and X-Ray is here, and Portland Radio Project is here. And so those are the kinds of stations that get a tremendous amount of energy because they're still very closely connected to the communities. One thing I'm interested in is how many, here, how many people here at this table have been college radio DJs when they were I have. in school? Or support I'm currently groupies. on staff. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Well, that's almost all of us. <laughs> I think it's a big deal. I think college radio is a big deal. I think it has a massive impact on people's lives. So, Laura, why don't you talk about that a little bit? Well, college radio is the one thing that I knew I wanted to do when I got to my university. And there's just something about the community of DJs, because it's almost like the kind of like the outsiders of campus. I mean, talk about the power of the, of the music director at a college station. I mean, what would, what's your life like when you're a music director? What do you do? It's fantastic. You feel like you're on fire because you have waiting in your mailbox stacks and stacks of records and everyone wants you to listen to them and a lot of times you'll get records that haven't even released yet, aka getting radio play, getting hype and everything and all the opportunities that open up and you can really make your campus and your audience involved and excited. It's just, there's something really special about when you're doing your show and then somebody texts you like, I love this song, what is it? Or you get call-ins. And yeah, there's just so many things that you can do to involve everyone on campus. And I just think, when I think about things like how things have been merging with you know companies like Spotify and Pandora, like those are fun and you will discover things through there. But I have to say, never have I ever told somebody like, Oh, I just found uh, this new band through Spotify. Like there are, you know, playlists, they have the tastemaker ones, and those are always exciting from my professional standpoint if we have an artist that's either, you know, European or kind of not well known and be like to the music director, like, they got on this highlighted list, and then they'll be like, oh, that's interesting, and then they'll look into it further. But really where you find the bands that you fall in love with are like 
the openers of shows that you go to or, you know, mixes from friends and recommendations from friends and even just searching it out on your own. I think, like, what's most important when you find new music is there's still that human connection there. And it's really fun making mixes. And, you know, weekly, if you have a show, you're making a weekly mix for yourself for the next week that you can keep playing it to yourself. And then the people out there, the people that you know are listening and the people you don't know who are listening. So I think it's very exciting. I think it's relevant. That's where I stand. You're here. Can I ask, when were you a music director? Was this like pre-Spotify getting big? Because I'm not a music director, but just like seeing some of what DJs at KPSU play, I feel like a lot of it is still kind of determined by what we see on our Spotify Discover playlist each week. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's, it's really strange. Our music director isn't here right now, but like the stuff she sends out each week, it's very rare that anyone downloads it anymore. It's usually, it's kind of all everyone's own stuff now. Mm. Well, I can understand. I mean, I have to say I have like the worst luck with technology by far. Like I've been through three iPods. I've had computers crashing. So I wound up going on pro Spotify because it allows me to pick and choose stuff. And then, of course, if it's smaller bands, I can go on Bandcamp. But when I was a music director... Spotify wasn't really huge yet and not a lot of people were actual users so then the issue would be the reason why our station manager didn't want us to use Spotify is that advertisements would pop up and that would be mm-hmm. abrupt and weird because we never did you know advertisements for things but actually one of the more bigger problems is we'd urge our DJs please do not play from YouTube <laughs> so actually YouTube was more of the issue there have been DJs at KPSU that make playlists on YouTube and then play it off the iMac. Oh, what? That isn't like even their own laptop. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. There are some. I don't want to like throw shade at any DJs at the station it's right too now. now. But, uh, it's too late now. Too late now. Yeah. Just so we, I just want everybody to be clear who's listening. So Jordan, you were saying so it's a bad thing for your DJs for some DJs to be playing off of YouTube. Why is that? I mean, a just like the quality of playing off of YouTube isn't as nice as playing off of anything you get off Bandcamp or it's probably on your iTunes, like it's going to be a lower bit rate. It's, it's not going to sound as nice. There might be some weird like issues. Internet, if it pops yeah. out, and then the internet stranded. Pops out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that stuff kind of happens with Spotify too, but Spotify, as long as you have premium, there's no ads and you can get like a higher bit rate version. Like I, I've used Spotify premium my entire college radio career because I have a MacBook Air. I don't have space to put like all my tunes on my laptop anymore. So I just use Spotify premium and then I... If there's stuff that's on Spotify, then I just use it as a local file, and Spotify's good about like importing that stuff. It's been really useful for just like finding new music. It's pretty, I don't know. I like it more than Apple Music, at least. So, so let me get this straight, just so I completely understand, since I'm 150 years old. <laughs> when I was a DJ at my college radio station, we had vinyl, and we had we do, uh, we vinyl CDs. Too. Yeah. So we CDs barely, but yeah, we had vinyl and CDs, and so we would play those. And you'd have to do the whole thing where you fade it and like make sure you get the next one just right. So now people don't have to do that. They just make a playlist and they push a button. Spotify <laughs> crossfades for itself. It. Like in the Spotify settings, there's a thing that says like crossfade tracks. So you can just have your Spotify crossfade for you. 
Wow. Like Spotify does it all for you. Like that's so boring. That's really weird. Yeah. I, like like I would say that. that's always <laughs> the case because a free form, uh, from my standpoint, when I'm going in and waiting for my show and I hear the show previous, there's a lot of DJs who just do plain old vinyl shows because we have two turntables and a microphone. Um, yeah. So sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. I think the music intersection is interesting. At Kibu, we still have vinyl. And many of our DJs are just doing the true turntables and a microphone bit. We have reel to reel still. Yeah, you can use it if you want. It takes a lot of effort. And I'll be frank, I haven't seen a lot of DJs <laughs> rolling that into the air room. <laughs> but uh, I find that that's a really interesting intersection. I, I was never a college DJ, but I came to journalism through music, where I did promotions, I did covering music, and then arts and culture. And at KBU, that's such a huge core part. You'll even just through for the we're, we're about to celebrate our fiftieth anniversary. Whoop, whoop. Uh, yeah, wow. but like music is huge. And speaking of like how we used to find out where all these new bands were coming from, it's at KBU we like to pride ourselves and like yeah, you can just learn to to DJ. We will. We have classes on a myriad of stuff, like how to, you know, cover shows, how to board operate, how to do audio editing. And if you want to go like the newser direction, like how, you know, real time cover festivals, how to cover hard news, all of that stuff. And I think the through line between college radio, like community radio in general is that educational component, because you can't really learn to do these things really anywhere else. These like, who's doing the DJing anymore, and how many, you know, what's the, what is the future of that? I think it's tied to like where can we get the fresh new content that's not just regurgitated, to where we just like push a button on some sort of like analytic program that tells us we want to fade down, because it's not going to sound the same as actually somebody fading down that that record, you know? So now all of us are just looking for something authentic. I hate to use that word because it's become like, you know, another marketing buzz tool. But people can tell when something is legit emotional quality and whether it's something that can make them feel motivated to do other things. So here we and are. And it's enjoyed a resurgence of mm-hmm. importance <laughs> lately right. with the rise of the Trump administration, you know, and fake news and, and whether something that you're hearing in, in media is authentic really matters, I think, so much more. Well, I think it goes back down to, like, you know, beyond that where we have technology and under the idea that it was utopian and this was also happening, like, even before the Reagan era, like, you could even go back to, like, MLK talking about automation. And so here we are where it's like, great, you know, great, we've got technology, we've got all these social media platforms, we have all these electronic ways to source music for us, but, you know, I'm not really hearing anything new, you know, or, like, depending on where you went, how far back you go DJing or sourcing music, like, man, I actually wish, I actually miss the days it took, you know, four hours to, for the band to go on, you know? I miss that experience. It's actually, that's kind of still around, I guess, from what I've experienced. But, like, stuff like that, where, like, it was a gem when you found those things. Really good artists, you know, who were fighting just as much as you were professionally to get, like, above the, the underground. And so... You know, I think that's the through line here. The future, the future of it is, you know, really contingent on can people still have access to learn how to do these things? Do they still have access to that, you know, in campuses and off campuses? I'd love to hear a little bit more about the discovery of music. And Aaron, I know that 
both X-Ray and Portland Radio Project, and I'm sure Freeform as well, are concerned with giving a platform for local musicians. That's something that really went away over time with the consolidation and, and the ownership concentration. Absolutely. I mean, part of the impetus for X-Ray becoming a radio station was because of the 26, 27 radio stations in town, the number that were not controlled by major corporate interests was three? Tiny. I mean, outside of, outside of NPR. So OPD. there's KB and, and KMHD and the classical station. There you go. And, then there's, and then the rest were lower frequency stations were owned by churches. So that was a huge reason why we pushed to get X-Ray on the air was to create another platform to be a, uh, so that, you know, KABU wasn't the only voice of independent spirit in Portland. And so, yeah, it's really, it's, it's invigorating because now it seems like there is actually a huge resurgence of energy towards radio, which we think of being such this like Luddite technology. But the reality is, is that something like 95% of homes in our country have radios in them more than they have televisions. And also, you know, it's still the, the time in which most people are consuming music and media outside of television is in their car when they're, and, and it's still majority from terrestrial radio. So there still is a lot of room for it. And within that spectrum of radio, the independent radio and to me is the space in which there actually is freedom. It's not pre-programmed from somebody living in Minneapolis. It's actually coming from people in Portland who have a sense of what's going on in this community. And that's why all the radio stations represented at this table are so valuable for our community because it actually is a finger on the pulse of what's actually happening in Portland. And so, yeah, I think there's still a huge, huge realm of importance for that. And, and I think college radio almost has, it's the bleeding edge of it. It's people who are just, who are perhaps the most excited. They're at the beginning of their exposure to music and, obvious, and often the music industry. And I, I, I'm always really drawn to the sort of amateur enthusiasm of it. It's, it's so exciting to see people just discover music that way. So I think Definitely. there's still, still so much so much importance in, in radio and especially in independent radio. Without exaggerating sometimes it's my life I hate nothing new Many people and places if I started over can't start over again No I can't start over again So I was Best Friend Forever by Alicia BB. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes and leave us a review. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What? 
We're talking to Zelos Marchant of KBOO, Rebecca Webb of Portland Radio Project, Aaron Hall of xray.fm, Laura Ragsdale of Distiller Promotions, and Jordan Rasmussen of KPSU. I think something else happened. I mean, you know, there's a lot of historical factors that go into everything, you know, making everything the way it is today. And I don't remember what year it was, but it was pretty recently that a bunch of new low frequency channels were opened. 2013. 2013, right. So that sort of paved the way. And I don't know, I don't know anything about that. Does anyone at this table know why those Could KPSU get one of those? Because we're still online. I would like a... We did get one of those. <sighs> I want one. <laughs> kind of at the last minute, because we really had made a decision because of the expense of terrestrial radio. We thought, well, well, we'll start online, and then we don't have to decide right now because it's a much more affordable way to get started. And then we found out about the window in 2013 where the FCC was releasing a lot of low-power FMs. Mm -hmm. And so we thought, ah, we better get one. What if this never happens again? And what I'd like to just point out about what's interesting about that is that that occurred because of the pushback against ownership concentration. Just a little bit of an overview about that is that after... 96 and all of the broadcast companies were bought out by a, a very handful of large media conglomerates like Clear Channel and Intercom. Then the public realized that something had happened. <laughs> Even though they couldn't really put their finger on it, they were like pushing the button going, these aren't my people. Where did my people go? This isn't my music. I, these are the same eight songs playing over and over again. And so the, eventually word you know, got around that these large corporations had basically taken the airwaves from the public. De facto, that's what happened. So there was a huge push for low-power FMs to be released by the FCC. And that's really not all the There's much more detail, but that's the gist of what happened. And so the FCC released these low-power frequencies in two rounds. One was in early 2000s. I think it might have been 2003, but I'm not positive of that year. And then the only other one that's happened, and what, what that means is low power is they go in between the large clear channels, which are very powerful, and find little smaller signals that can be used for community purposes. And then nonprofits apply for those. And that's what we did at Portland Radio Project in 2013. And we were happy that we got one. We actually got it at the time in partnership with the Q Center, the LGBTQ Resource Center in North Portland. We had applied for the same signal. And when that happens, if more than one party applies, you, have, you can either you know, arm wrestle over it legally, get lawyers, and you know, it might take years to try to claim the whole signal, or you can agree to share it. And that's called a timeshare, and that's what we did. And then they decided not to continue broadcasting sometime last year, so they gave us their whole signal. So we have 24-7, which we were thrilled about that, of course. Definitely. Yes. So Aaron, how did X-Ray do it? Because I know you guys have more than one. We started out on 91.1, and it was, I remember the day that our signal went live, because up until that point, we didn't really know how loud it was going to be. And we very soon realized that it was not loud at all, and that it could be heard, you know, with some strength if you were pretty close to the Mount Tabor area. If you were sort of between, let's say, 50th and 120th and between I-84 and Hawthorne, you could get some sense of it. But beyond there, the, the signal just wasn't strong enough. 
And so KZME was a radio station that was around for several years that was mostly focused on local programming. And they decided to hang it up. And so we applied for their license. And without knowing the full technological spectrum of how it works, essentially we have our, our core signal at 91.1. And that sends a signal up into the West Hills on one of those radio towers that you see up there. And then that allowed us to broadcast also at 107.1. And that opened up the floodgates for us because really, I mean, you know, we live in the digital age, but people, st when they think of radio, they think of being able to hear a terrestrial signal. And so once we were able to merge with, with KZME's signal at 107.1, we were actually able to be heard by, I think it's like 800,000 people in town. And so mm -hmm. it really covers most of the city, or at least what we think of the core of, of Portland. Right. And then didn't you guys get a Vancouver signal We did. As well? We actually just got a, a signal out of Vancouver, which covers most of Vancouver and also covers the, the area of North Portland that our 107.1 signal wasn't. So we're kind of cobbling it together, but it's, it's working. And, and now our signal is heard by, by all, of, of, uh, all of Portland. So let's talk for a second about money because I'm interested in this. You know, basically, if you think about corporate radio, if you think about you know, the big commercial stations, even if you never have thought about it, the thing that you should think about is money because that's what it's all about. That's what commercial radio is there for. That's what they're making. That's mm -hmm. what they're doing. And, and that's why people like me get really annoyed by the thought of commercial radio because really it's not about the art at all. It's literally about, you know, I mean, I had someone explain to me, someone who works in commercial radio, I have never worked in commercial radio, so this is literally secondhand information. So nobody can get mad at me. I swear to God, someone <laughs> told me yeah. that that the the reason that they play the songs that they play is because they play the most popular songs with the thought that if you hear the popular songs, you'll stay on the radio station for longer, long enough for the advertisements to come on. Mm -hmm. Which is why they play the same twelve songs. I mean, I think it's twelve. That's the number of playlistable, like hot playlist songs. And That's I don't crazy. know a ton about this either, but I do know that they're tested. Basically, they, they are scientifically tested. And right. whatever you know, people react to emotionally for those tests, then they choose a limited number. I'm not sure if it's 12. Well, I think that's kind of flawed. Then, like there's the, those, the Nielsen um, system that they use, but that doesn't really like, and, and a whole bunch of analytics that are, in my mind, nefarious. But like the, the Nielsen system numbers, I think this ties back into like why it is so important that we do what we do. And I'm so excited to hear X-Ray like reaching out more and that there's like more community stations and, and low wave because like the Nielsen system that they're using does not count African-American audience and it doesn't count Hispanic audience. It counts Hispanic radio, like Spanish-speaking radio, but it doesn't include any of those demographics or the host of other POC demographics at all? I would push back a little bit about that. I've, I've I certainly wouldn't. a fair amount of the Nielsen ratings, and they do have categories. I don't know how accurate they are. Well, they're they, not, you know, yeah. but that's something that KBOB just acquired, and it's something that was something I just encountered as I went more and towards broadcast. So I think tying back into authenticity, people can tell when those 12 songs are really washed down, you know, like that doesn't, A, who wants to hear 12 songs? You know, where's my, where are my people? Where are the actual human mm -hmm. beings that are, I can tell are going into the nitty gritty and actually down into the culture and doing the work of like, you know, choosing music, art, programging, all of that, that resonates with the lives that we're living every day. Definitely. And uh, tying back into money, like right now, uh, KB was working really hard to create new standards to measure the engagement of our audience because we can't rely on things like the Nelson system, which is, 
was a really racist system to begin with that in, found in like 1920-something where it didn't want to and still doesn't recognize like thousands of ethnic demographics, not to mention racial. And, and when it does, it's really <laughs> arbitrary. You know, you can literally look down where it says African-American and it says N-A, not applicable. But it will list maybe African-American programming. Now, who's listening to that is like anybody's guess mm-hmm. at that point. And, you know, for money, like we have to, these are the structures that we live in. Tying back into money, like we don't do corporate sponsorship where we are at, at KBOOM. But when we are going for grants, we need to prove that we have a certain amount of listenership, you know, and a certain amount of engagement. And this year has just been really, really difficult to look at that and go, yeah, that sucks that we're having to use these really capitalistic systems for acquiring and engaging money and mm-hmm. reading our audience that in each department, we're at a point where we're like, okay, as we're growing as community stations and as low frequencies growing, what is community? Is there a community at all? And how can we say that we are talking with it, mm-hmm. speaking with them and serving the needs of those of our public and so one of those ways has been like okay how much are drive successful you know to to expound on that another way we look at that in terms of evergreen monies and evergreen audiences like as we do what we do are people coming to the station and actually you know wanting to be a dj are they wanting to know where we're getting our music from are they calling are they becoming a part of our programs are they wanting to know where we table is there like an extended conversation happening or is this just like random people calling into the air room upset about something that you know like and mm-hmm. or and if they are how often are they are they the kind of people oh, that are calling some there that call right like week. some some are actually repetitively calling mm-hmm. you know and are those numbers growing around that programming? What kind of response are we getting? And so when we have meetings, we sit down and go, okay, here's all the boring financial stuff that is necessary. We hate it, but it's true. Like mm-hmm. we need to be engaging in such a way that because we're not corporately beholden, but we're still financially beholden and you know, have to be beholden to like a corporate system of rating. We sit that down and then we sit down you know, those numbers and then talk about programming. And then we kind of have just begun to create a very sparse, like intersecting spread of what that engagement is looking like. That's like one thing that we're doing right now in terms of answer your question about money. How do you handle it? How do you grow it? How do you like make peace and sleep at night about it? So that's where we're at right now. Well, our mm-hmm. burden along those lines is growing and it's going to get ever bigger sure. with uh, the trend, you know, toward uh, pulling back on government funding, which we're seeing with the Corporation for Public yes. Broadcasting, defunding you know, our public stations. So Yeah, that's been a scare. It's going to be mm-hmm. more and more on us to figure out you know, how mm-hmm. do we stay afloat. But bringing the community more involved is you know, the fuzzy way of doing it and actually like, making a difference. I would say, too, from like, a more classic college radio relationship with like finances and doing funds and everything is I feel like notoriously across the board schools do not want to give you that much money for your radio stations I know personally they tried to cut it down as much as they could while I was there and for that you know stations really have to prove themselves that they have a voice and that they have an audience and one thing I will say that's kind of to do more with like the current climate of radio is obviously you know there's these stations that are spinning these tracks and then they also do you know charts 
and that's something that I look at, and they do their top 30 albums played of the week. And CMJ was an organization that compiled all that information, and it gave a really good scope of what's happening across the country, like what stations are playing what. And recently, in case you're not in the know, CMJ is just flat out RIP. But to say what is related with finances that's new with this college climate that has actually just been new in the last eight months is that there is a new chart organization out there. It's called NACC. But what's cool about it is that it's free for all stations forever. So NACC just started in September. And this past week, they've had around 250 college radio stations that have reported, which is pretty great because to give you an idea of how CMJ was doing with charting just this past year, in August of 2016, there were around 167 stations reporting. And then I'll just go down to the further one where they're more in their heyday of recent years because they used to be way bigger in like the 90s and stuff. But in 2013, CMJ only had 223 stations reporting. So that means from now till more of like the heyday of CMJ, they have about 30 more stations reporting than they had in the past. And the reason why it's good that you know it's a free for all stations is it's bringing a ton of stations out of the woodwork because now they can have their voice heard because they can contribute to something. So that's what I think is interesting. So CMJ, you used to have to pay a radio station oh, to pay. Yeah, there was a subscription. CMJ. It was like in the three digit zone. I mean, like the promoters have to pay to get that information. Had to pay to get that information. And but with NAC, it's free for stations, but not free for promoters are labels, so that's how they're getting the thing. I see. Yeah. So just explain to us, since you do radio promotion now, Mm -hmm. why are radio charts important? I mean, how are they used? Well, my clients are the bands themselves or labels, and they want to see the new releases that they have, you know, sparking up interests in places beyond where the artist is from, to grow them from their home city support and these charts are important, which is actually, I'm going to like quote myself back when I was a music director and when I was really pushing people to like listen to new music, I'd be like, please check out what's in here because when we send these top 30 charts and they're actually representative of what you're playing and you're playing releases that are new, guess what? the labels and the bands will look at what cities these radio stations are in that are really loving you and then they'll go on tour and then you can go see them and maybe I can even hook you up with a free ticket because promoters want to give you as much as they can so you can get the perk perks. But it has a lot to do with touring and I know some of my friends' bands too who actually they've done like bigger tours like US tours in Australia too but the way they at least how they interpret it, how they make their own, the most money personally is through tours, selling merch, actually, you know, doing these performances. And, yeah. I was always curious whether charting and whether being beholden to those charts was actually a further homogenization of music. I feel like... It can be, yeah. Now we're in this era where you can discover music in a million different ways from your pocket... Whereas when I was in college a long time ago now, when we were still using CDs and records that were sent to us by promoters, you would get a call you know, every week from 
20 promoters, college radio promoters, asking if you're playing their record, and then you're submitting to CMJ, and you're looking at what is getting charted everywhere else, and it was a further popularity contest. Now when people yeah. are able to discover music that is being made in a bedroom by a 17-year-old in Duluth that might be the next amazing thing, you're able to, to cut out all of that middleman. You don't have to... I remember when I was a music director at the radio station I was at, we would get you know an annual budget of a few hundred bucks to go out and buy CDs of stuff that we were into. Otherwise, it was 100% stuff that was sent to us by promoters or by individual artists. So I sort of feel like, to some extent now, that middleman has been cut out, and perhaps that's why CMJ be gained less relevancy, because that music can be can be put out on the airwaves without that avenue. Well, CMJ, just as a heads up, went super bankrupt, so that was the main reason. There's lots of articles out there about it. But I understand, like, I would be kind of that middleman there. But, uh, oh, just as a side note, too, that's interesting. The only, I feel like the only users of CDs now are college radio stations. Some have been switching over to digital submissions, and that's good. But for, honestly, across the board, most pe most stations prefer CDs. So we send out stacks of CDs. Often we'll do them in-house, so that means Friday we'll stay after for work and just keep packaging all this stuff. But yeah, we mainly send out CDs. And I mean, yeah, you can sift through that pile and, you know, do as much as you can to find the music that you want based on like the one sheet information and stuff. But if you have a relationship with somebody that you speak with every week and they have a gist of the the sound of your radio, because every radio station has a different particular sound. And if they're honest and not bullies or anything, like I'm not going to keep pushing you to add this folk record when basically all you're playing is electronica at the station. So I don't know. I really, what I like to do with my role is that I try really hard to piece together how... I interpret the music and make sure all the facts are straight and yeah, give it, give it to the people who want to hear the music. So, and I mean, I know also from a music director standpoint, like I went with a buffet mentality. So it was kind of like, I'll pick what I like, but then I'll also put these type of artists in just because I know other people are going to play it. And then the next week when I'm compiling charts, I see them go in like the top five or the top two. And I'm like, wow, I think this sucks, but other people do not. So I'm glad that they found it and they like it. But yeah, it's, I think it's more about, you know, like the music director role is to help bridge the gap. And then from there, the promoters are helping bridge the gap, especially since there's a bunch of independent labels that we work with. So it's not like we're sending over Big Boy from Sony. So...
That was Lazy Little Ada by Colin Malloy. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. Support for The Future of What? comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Braunohler wanted a face towel with his face on it, Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail order store. KRS loves Merch Table. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to Zelos Marchant of KBU, Rebecca Webb of Portland Radio Project, Aaron Hall of xray.fm, Laura Ragsdale of Distiller Promotions, and Jordan Rasmussen of KPSU. Well, and I think what's interesting about what you said is that most radio stations have a sound, like they have a genre that they a do. Voice, but yeah. A identity. voice, yeah. Identity. Right. But Aaron, I mean, like X-Ray is an interesting example because, I mean, would you guys say that there's a specific genre that you guys do or how do you define yourselves? Because I feel like X-Ray is a different kind of an animal because you have DJs at night who are playing their own music, like the stuff that they're interested in. But then you have talk mm-hmm. and you have community stuff. Sure. The way that we tried to structure it was to, I guess, manage expectations when people were turning, tuning in to have a sense of what they were walking into. So we looked at it and we, we put talk from 6 a.m. till 2 p.m., Monday through Friday, and at 2 p.m. till 6 a.m. the next day, it's all music, and then it's all music all the time on the weekends. And then beyond that, we tried to do vertical programming in that like one genre would lead into the next. Whereas most college radio stations, because of the amount of turnover, are pretty much open for format. And Freeform is obviously an open format station, which is rad because you, it's kind of a grab bag. You never know what you're going to walk into. You know, you might be here t- metal at 2 p.m. in the afternoon. You might hear classical at 2 a.m. and you never know. For us, we were like, well, you know, we want to, you know, we want to have the edgier sounds, the harder edge sounds later at night. We want to have things that are more broadly palatable at times when more people are going to be listening during the drive time hours. And eventually we realized that where we did want to create a platform for newer music and for people to find music, stuff that was coming out right now or bands that are swinging through town or local stuff was really in our, in our music drive time block. So from 2 p.m. till 6 p.m. Monday through Friday, the music that you're going to be hearing is all of those type of programming. And then outside of those blocks, you're, you're hearing vertical programming. So rather than going straight from you know, garage rock to modern hip hop, you're going to go from garage rock to soul to funk to boogie to early hip hop to modern hip hop. So there's an arc that's easy you into it. Right, exactly. Yeah. So it's not these stark sort of hard right turns mm-hmm. in the programming. But it took us a long time to get there just because, you know, we wanted people to not change the channel when it went from one show to the next because it was something that was so out you know basically we if we have a captive audience to try to keep them for as long as possible and what about kebu how, how do you guys define yourselves oh man i i was actually just wanting to jump in and like ask aaron like how difficult you find continuing that arch you know right now being 50 kebu being 50 years like there's old timers there oh yeah i'll be frank there's old timers there and they're great like i love walking in on thursday and having shock sashiba these two cute white ladies who are 
I want to hate. I'm just like, <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing? And then doing the Rasta, but they have, they have so much love for the Rasta that it makes my Thursday feel like I can pull through, you know? <laughs> um, that saying, it's frustrating as a director, and I'm just like, okay, this is a rough transition. We just went from Hillbilly to this in like yeah. three seconds. But they've had these blocks for a long time, and there's lots of discussion, too, about as we like serve each other and serve our, our audiences and try to streamline things. How do we do that without alienating? I feel like that has been the name of the game lately as we're all looking at each other like, okay, now what do we do going forward? Like, how do we make it sound streamlined and not contribute to this like controller system? And yet like it's, you know, when there's a nice transition, that's been the name of the game. And uh, KB lately is like, let's talk about transitions. Well, we, we, we had the advantage of starting from scratch and being able to sort of look at it with, with fresh eyes. And I totally understand when there's shows that have been on the air for 20 years, you don't want to kick somebody off their spot right. for the sake of programming cohesion. Right. So, but we tried to get way ahead of that. We also tried to manage the expectations of our DJs that this is not your spot. This is where you are right now. This is where it makes sense in the programming schedule. And that you know, we want to keep the conversation open so that if this doesn't make sense down the road, that we'll, we'll move you somewhere else where it does make sense. Mm -hmm. And I think just managing the expectations of the DJs has been really helpful to that end. And I, there's always going to be hard right turns. When you're, when, you know, we're doing the full spectrum of recorded music from 1920 until now. So, you know, 100 years of music, there's going to be times where there's weird transitions but we tried to minimize them as much as possible. And we, we've had to sw switch our model around a few times. And when you do that, there's mm -hmm. gonna be a couple people who are mm -hmm. bummed out, but if you can kind of let them know that we're doing this for the sake of putting your show in the place in which the most people are going to appreciate it. And the coolest thing about X-Ray that we didn't even really imagine before it came to fruition was that it, it started to create new musical communities within Portland because people are finding more, the DJs are finding more like-minded people who, who are interested in the same kind of genres. New bands have popped up, new record labels have popped up just by unintentionally creating these new sort of microcosms of, of Portland's music community. None of us could be in a better city for what we're trying to do right now than Portland. I love so there's it. There's plenty of, uh, it's so much proliferation of music that we're all really fortunate that way. And I just want to say, Z, that even though I hear what Aaron is saying about the benefits, and certainly at Portland Radio Project, we also try to you know, sort of smooth out the transition so when people tune in to 99.1, you know, they know what they're listening to. But I hope you never do that at KVU. <laughs> the element of surprise at KVU, I think, is very I totally important. Yeah, agree we, with that. we don't, I just want to be really clear we don't plan on ever taking the element of surprise away. Like, that's why we do what we do. But we're, we're not necessarily talking about like taking away the beautiful surprise of you just had Yiddish and now you're having some rap right now. <laughs> um, sometimes that's refreshing. But I think like just the transitional aspect is a real thing. Meeting your audience is a real thing. And so, like, there is this. It, I agree. We're not. We're, we couldn't be in a better place right now for Portland. Like we love music. We love each other's music and love art. And so the challenge has been okay. You know, as we are reaching out to audiences that have been thirsty for their people, we're like, how do we? How do we make sure they know that we're listening to them? We want your stuff while not, you know, and making time for that. Could I just say one thing about the intergenerational aspect? Because I, this is something that we're facing, too. Our founders are all, you know, probably more or less in the baby boomer era. And I count myself in that number. And we've reached out to pull in 
millennial audience with the idea that we have some networks and some resources and some experience that we can offer them, but we see ourselves more at this point as mentors and facilitators. So I don't know if that's something that you guys are doing. I mean, we never want people in any generation to feel like their voices aren't being heard, but I think also that as with all of life, time is marching on, and I think that it's important for you know, for those of us who've been around for a while to feel that we have something to offer younger people. And that's how we've sort of structured ours is that we're more mm. mentors. That's mm. interesting you put that. Like, I would say that a large percent of my job at KBU is mentorship, and that goes for the volunteers too, that I find is really unique, that I think is unique to KBU in that I hear what you're saying about feeling like you need to pass something on. I frankly feel like this is causes sometimes a cognitive dissonance because, you know, there are those of us who are younger that are like, well, you know, we've been trying to find this authenticity. I'm a Gen Xer, so it's like, I feel like we were born depressed in some ways because it was like, no, we don't need to stand for anything because there's nothing really good. Did I become miserable because I listen uh, to Yeah, <laughs> I'm often just like, millennials, you don't know how to be depressed. Like, we made that. But... <laughs> but <laughs> I've been depressed my whole life. You know, you we can take out. this outside later. It's okay. We'll buy each other Starbucks and cry. It's fine. But, you know, at KBOO, like, everybody's a mentor. We don't, you know... Then I'm not saying I, we know how to like solve all these issues of like how do you make sure everyone feels supported because like I really think, feel like here unity is a sham. It's challenging. But people come from all different walks of life into KBU. Like some people have had, you know, jockey experience. Some people haven't. Some people have done promotions. Some people haven't. Some people have never written anything before. Some people have written for seven years and they're just wanting to volunteer and do something. And so. That's you why know, it's great because it's, it's a it's huge great. variety. So, yeah, and yeah. most people are on board with that, and and that that helps. Where even doesn't matter the generational thing doesn't really matter because in the context of KBU, somebody who might only have been there like for a year, or some people have been there five years, but maybe they've done different jobs. That the majority of the time, I haven't really. Yeah, I felt that all everybody was mentoring each other in some way, and that's really helpful in terms of running classes too, or maybe somebody just got gun ho for anchoring. And so they're doing anchoring classes or somebody just loves their Peter Frampton so hard. And so they have like this block that they mm-hmm. do. Like is, the is, fifth. There a, is there a Frampton block? Actually, there's somebody on the youth collective that is, bless their hearts. It's like this 14 year old pimply cute kid who's just like so down for the worst music ever and everybody on the youth collective when he comes in is just like oh man not this guy again but like we're Aaron and I are like he's important too and this is his turn to spend for two hours so he'll go in there with you know, Rhinestone Cowboy and Peter that, Frampton. That's the interesting like, thing about independent radio is because you're trying to, you're trying right? to create this confluence between uh, <laughs> people being able to express themselves and curation right. and often mm-hmm. host things um, it's difficult. can be at loggerheads. Yeah, they'll, they'll, I'm, I'm there when the youth collective gets there at night and I love them because they shake it up after like the news and they're just like, what? And I'm like, listen, it's not about you. It's not just about you. Like, no, this does not do it for me, but it's, it's not about me either. So give him his one... Two hour spot a month. <laughs> but yeah. it's also the it's the pipeline for the music industry. Yeah. It's like the first job that almost everybody I know that's in the music business was doing college radio or being a music director, being a program director. Yeah. That's totally um, true. Well, the last thing I wanted to to just touch on really quickly, because we're pretty much out of time, um, is 
sort of a little bit of a more hopeful note. I mean, I'm making this up, so I could be just totally <laughs> full of it, and you guys can tell me that. But I think one of the interesting things about this moment in history is that for whatever reason, I think the internet and the way things have gone, technology has happened, we've kind of come around and back to a time when genres and scenes are more important. And I think everything has kind of microed as opposed to macroed. Like I think everything got real big in the 90s and then now it's collapsing. And mm -hmm. as a result, I think one of the, the most popular models out there right now is, is this like subscription membership model, which is like the original public radio model. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, do you guys feel like that's like a positive? I, I kind of hate it. I think it's largely because they don't have a lot of options. You know, they <laughs> right. pretty much, pe people have figured out they're going to have to pay to get what they want. And most of the public radio models that I'm familiar with, and I don't know if this is true of X-Ray, but OPB, for example, and KEXP up in Seattle, they're, they get at least 60% of their funding comes from members. Right. And mm -hmm. so, you know, that's a lot of people to try to draw in to your circle <clears throat> to make it work. And, you know, OPB's so good at it and they've been at it so long and no matter how much we might hate Pledge Week, it does work, you know, to mm -hmm. get people to guilt trip them over to, you know, make their payment and, and become a member. So it's kind of an unfortunate reality. I don't think it's the best case scenario, but I think that's largely. I just think what it's interesting because I think yeah. it's like everything yeah. old is new again. Like now, this is how you know this is an old model, but it's actually mm -hmm. pretty strong right now. Because the other two possibilities, you know, for funding streams, if it's not going to be your members, it's going to be either businesses or the government, right? And it's mm -hmm. not going to be the government. It could be both. I don't know. We were I, saying at KBU, like nobody owns KBU. Does that mean we're going to say screw you? No, <laughs> but. You know, we're built on a free form in, mm -hmm. in many ways. And if you're really going to be a part of real life experience in the community, then you're going to understand that it's not just about you. I don't know. I felt like I owned OPB when I wrote to them uh, and I said, if you don't get rid of World Have Your Say, I'm never going to subscribe uh, again. That show sucked. I felt the same way. They're still playing. I mean, I, I, I listen to OPB constantly, but they're still playing Car Talk yeah. reruns and they haven't put on a new show in I think three or four years now and one of their one of the hosts is dead so again that's not a knock on, on OPB because it's very very popular but yeah. I think that smaller independent radio stations have an opportunity there's a huge huge lane that we've seen by these new radio stations popping up and by what KB has been doing for a long time this is what people in Portland want I think mm -hmm. this is a, a, a community and a market that's that's just aching for for different voices uh, people have been claiming that radio is on its last legs since the advent of television, and it's still going strong. There's more radios than there is TVs in this country. And I think that there, it's, a, it's a great time for radio, and it's a great time for college radio. It's, it's, yeah, such, totally. mm -hmm. it's such a great resource for young people to be able to express themselves. People have been sharing music since the beginning of time, and college radio is a fun, amateur, kind of just free market of, of cultural ideas and it's and it's beautiful and on that note thank you guys so much for being with me today on the future of what welcome yeah thank, thank you thanks woo we did it yay <laughs> well you don't fit in thank god but you don't know what you've got so you try Oh
was Another Song About the Darkness by Lauren Hoffman. Looking for a new podcast? Check out O Marks the Spot from Outer Loop Management. Host Mike Mowry and Outer Loop staff members Lance Rowe and Susie Lee give listeners a behind-the-scenes look at what it takes to run a label and management company from every aspect, highlighting the successes and challenges from week to week. Find O Marks the Spot on your favorite podcast app. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Alicia Beebe, Colin Malloy, Lauren Hoffman, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.